Okay, good morning to each one of you. It's been interesting to sit where you are right now this week. Um, but I've enjoyed this week what we've what we've learned, and uh, after I listened to Brother Wendell in the last uh, session, there I. I was hoping you don't all have your report cards out and are going to mark my message according to what he shared. And if you do, please be gracious because I have a few less gray hairs than he does. But the topic that I was given to share on this morning was, is the relevance of the word. And as I thought of that, well, the first question that came to mind is, is God's word still relevant for us today? And, and I... I'll put this disclaimer out. This will be more of a message type than a teaching type today, maybe. And I hope you're fine with that. I don't know what the committee had in mind when they had asked me. But as we think of the relevance of the word, um, you know, we think of technology, the life, the world we live in. It's, it improves almost daily. And so, as we heard about this book this week, the question is, is it still current today? Is it still relevant for us today? I mean, we all hear comments like, the Bible is old-fashioned. It's out of touch. It was written in a different time, in a different culture, and so on. And so, it's no longer practical or prevalent for us today. And so, this morning, I want to... What my aim is to do is to show that the Bible is still relevant for us today, and I might have a bit of an unorthodox way of getting there, but if you stick with me, I hope we can get there in the end. And I, I want to break it down into three different points in order to do that. Um, first of all, I want to look at some things that we, as we face today in society. I want to look at how we got there as a society. And I want to look at uh, what the Word of God has to say about this and how, how we can see that the Word is truly relevant for us today. And by doing that, I think we'll be able to point out that the words of Solomon are still true, that there is nothing new under the sun. And we've heard much of that, and, and I... I guess I don't apologize for overlapping. We heard repetition is good, but uh, I've been surprised with the topics that we've given that there hasn't been more overlap, and I guess that that uh, is a pat on the back for the, the moderating committee or whoever drew up the program because they gave us pretty detailed descriptions of what they want us to talk about, and so these topics would have lended for a lot, of, a lot more overlap, I think. And so... But as I think of the word, um, in Hebrews 4.12, there it tells us that the word is, of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow, and is the discerner and thoughts of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And I guess before, before I read that, I was going to ask the question, as, as we think of the criticism that we hear about the Bible today, what do we tell those critics of the Bible? And then the second question I had was, do we actually have to um, defend the Bible, or can the Bible defend itself? 
And as, as I think of this in Hebrews here, it talks of how the word is quick and powerful. And that word quick is one of those that in translation, we, it's not English we use, it means alive. And so I believe that the word can defend itself. And it does that because it is alive and because it's powerful and because it's divine. And we heard all those things this week and they were um, when we were so richly taught about how, how scripture was brought together and so on. But the word defends itself because it's alive and it can take root. It can bring forth growth and it can increase. And, you know, Paul said there in First Corinthians 3, 6, he said, I have planted Apollos as watered, and God gave the increase. And that's one of the ways that God gives us that increase is through his word. And like I said, as I, as I bring out some of these things, I, um, the illustration, and, and I'll admit right up front, some of these things, I, in my mind, in order for me to understand scripture, I have to. I don't know if dumb it down is the level, is the right word, but I have to bring it down to a level that I can understand it, and so hopefully you can follow along with that this morning. But when I think of the, what the Hebrew writer here is telling us, the picture that comes to my mind is, is of a tree growing out of a rock. And uh, maybe you saw that on your travels here, but sometimes we see the, a tree growing out of the side of a, a rock cliff, and we wonder how did it ever get there? How did it ever start to grow? And, and obviously at one time there was a little seed that fell into a crevice of that rock and there was enough soil there and there was enough water that got in there to germinate that seed and to allow it to grow. And as that seedling grew into a tree, what often happens in that case is that the tree will actually pull the rock back and force it back. And that is what I see in this, in this scripture here. And because the word of God is alive like that too and it says it's, it's like a two-edged sword that can cut into anything. It can cut into any um, the darkest, deepest sinner's heart and once it's in there and it germinates and grows, it can open that heart up just like that rock with that tree growing out of it. And that's what reminds, that's the picture I get when I see this, this, um, this verse here. And so the challenge for me then as a pastor and for all of us and as Christians is that if, if we know that the word of God has that kind of power to change men's lives, that it can peel even the hardest heart apart just like that rock with a tree growing out of it, then why do so many people still reject it today? Why are there even some churches that say that the Bible is parts of the Bible are no longer relevant? Why are there people that, that challenge that when we know that that is the power of the gospel? And so, in those three points that I want to make this morning, I hope to show that the Bible is still relevant. And I believe that one of the reasons that the Bible is no longer relevant to some people is because of their view on truth. And as we heard, I think it was Gerald that said earlier in the week, that whenever... Well, on our view of truth or whatever foundational basis that we work with, when that view becomes skewed, whatever it is that we're discussing, when that, 
when our view of the foundational principle becomes skewed, then everything from there up becomes distorted. And so we live in a, in a world today where, where truth is, is no longer truth. And I don't think this is anything new for, for you. But we've put a fancy name on the society that we live in. And that is, I don't know if you've heard of this term, but many people refer to the society we live in as post-truth. And this is, it was a word that was, that was penned first in the early 90s. And, and nobody really thought anything of it until the 2016 presidential campaign here in America. It got used a lot. Post-truth, after that presidential <coughs> campaign was nominated as, as word of the year that year. And the definition of post-truth is relating to an environment in which facts are viewed as irrelevant or less important than personal beliefs and opinions. And emotional appeals are used to influence public opinion. So again, if I put that down into my language, it means that playing on people's emotions or telling them what they want to hear is more important than telling them the truth. And that's the society that we live in today. You know, in a post-truth society like that, there is no longer truth or lies. But instead, there are statements that might be true, but yet, at the same time, they seem too close to call them false or wrong. And if you've noticed in the headlines in the papers, nobody is wrong anymore. They're only guilty of misspeaking. Or they exercise poor judgment. And you... If you accuse somebody of lying, it seems far too harsh. They just say that they're in denial. So in this post-truth society that we live in, the lines begin to blur between right and wrong. Those lines between honesty and dishonesty and fiction and, and facts and so on. And people change, their habits change, and deceiving becomes a part of them. And for some, it's first a challenge and a game, and, and ultimately, for some, it becomes a habit to deceive others. And, and this post-truth society that we live in, the experts would say that one of the biggest contributors to that is the people that we look up to, the, the so-called rich and famous, maybe. They're the therapists and the entertainers and the politicians, the lawyers and academics. And... And it's those people and their declining code of ethics that brings us to this, um, to this society that we live in. It's these people that the common man looks up to that are living double lives. They're living with very little morals. And so, as we think of this society that where we live in, there's three main attributes that, that uh, bring us to this society. And that is, and these are nothing new. These have been around since the beginning of the Bible. Self-indulgence. It's a me-first attitude. Everybody wants what they want. They feel they're entitled to it. It's all about self. And the second one is the decline of community. Everyone wants to do what they want, when they want, how they want. And no one's supposed to tell them anything else. Nobody wants to be accountable to anyone. I found that one interesting. It's the opposite of brotherhood. Or maybe 
Your brotherhood has some of those things creeping in. That's another, there's a message title for someone. But the third contributor to this society, and probably the greatest one that we're dealing with today, is the rise of the internet. I don't know, we had a topic at our church and a brother once, a brother who's in the tech field said, he doesn't know the ramifications of the tech field. He works in it and he said he won't know maybe in his lifetime the, the repercussions that it will have on his children, on his family and on our churches. And I, I think we're in the midst of it. We don't know how far reaching that's going to be. But that's, again, that's not my topic for today. But we live in a, in a special, we live in a, a time when, I mean, we've always had fiction books around. We've always had things that people wrote that we can't believe. But we live in a time now with the aid of the Internet that things look very legit. And we have to discern what is right and wrong, what is true and not true. We, another um, word that uh, became famous from your president here is fake news. There's lots of things that we can read that are fake and they look legit. We have social media platforms like Facebook, for instance, that has all kinds of false information and they will agree that it's out there, but they don't want to put a stop to it because they don't want to be the discerner of truth. And we heard Gerald speak on that as well. They want everyone to be free to express their views and opinions, but they do not want to be the discerner of truth. We've got people amongst our own churches that are blogging and and posting their views and pictures of their lives online because the Internet has given them a soapbox. It's given them a pulpit to get their information out there to the masses from the confines of their very own house. People are using the Internet for all kinds of things, to spread rumors, get revenge, ultimately attack other people. And, and you can take anyone's words, even our words as pastors, they can take them and they can twist them around to make them say what they want to say, put them out there, and there will be someone somewhere that agrees with them. And so here I am painting this picture, and you're probably all wondering, what does this have to do with the relevance of the word? What I want to bring out one of what I want to look into the Bible is, well, first of all, the question is what I've described really a 21st century problem. Is it really something that we are only facing today? Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John 18. I want to look at a few verses there. John 18, this is the, this is the trial of Jesus here. Jesus is before Pilate, and I'd like to start reading at verse 37. And Pilate asks the question to Jesus, Are thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all, but ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Is a post-truth era something new? Is it something we only face in the 21st century? 
You know, Pilate here, he already understood what it meant to bend the truth. He asked the question, what is truth? He understood how to bend it for his own sake. He knew that he was dealing with an innocent man. He knew that Jesus was innocent, but he also knew the power of that multitude that was out there before him. The Jews had already made up their mind. They had already taken the words and the actions of Jesus and they had twisted them around and presented it to their people. And they had rallied that crowd up into a frenzy where they wanted to crucify Jesus. And the amazing thing is they did all that without the Internet. But we can clearly see here in the trial of Christ that it gives us a clear picture of somebody who, whose, their ethics have eroded as well. People that others looked up to. The leaders here, both, both Pilate and Caiaphas, the high priest, they did what the people wanted them to do instead of standing for truth. They were in leadership and they turned a blind eye to the truth for things that gained them personally, politically, and financially. I'd like to just continue reading a few more verses to bring out a few more points here in this trial. Jump down to 19 and verse 4. It says, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring, forth, bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was, more, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and the power to release thee? And Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given from thee above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate came unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him, therefore, Unto them to be crucified. You know, Pilate as a leader here, he was caught between a rock and a hard place, we could say. He was caught between the fear of God and the fear of man. He understood that Jesus was innocent. He, I don't know how much he knew about Christ and about God, but he under, when he heard that this was the Son of God, he feared. But he feared that multitude in front of him even more. And so he chose to appease the people that he could see and go against the God that he could not see, which stood for truth. And as you know the story, it's, it's not a new story, but 
After he made that decision to appease the people, he plotted in his mind a compromise of the truth. And in Matthew there it tells us that he publicly washed his hands, symbolically washed his hands so that the blood of Christ is not on his hands. And then he made that sign and he hung it above Christ saying that he is the king of the Jews. And this was all steps that Pilate took so that in his mind he was no longer responsible for the death of Christ. He was trying to dumb down the truth. He was trying to blur those lines between right and wrong. And so as we can see, this, this, uh, what I described here about the society we live in is not new. We just have a fancy new word for it. But the people are still the same. Turn with me to Second Timothy, if you want. Second uh, Timothy 3, verse 9 verses. Read like this. This know also that in the last day perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden, away with, laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannies and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. They shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. Paul is pointing out all the ways which we as humans can be self-indulgent. But those verses that I read, does that not accurately describe a post-truth society? Does that not describe, we would probably say that that describes the world we live in. Well, obviously it describes the world that Paul lived in too. And probably has described many of the generations between then and now. And this is where we learned this week that the Bible transcends time. We all deal with these things. Paul is warning about the things that, that humans will do. They'll, and these are, this is nothing new for you. But they'll scoff at God. They're, they'll be disobedient, ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving, unforgiving. They'll slander each other and betray their friends. They'll have no self-control and they'll hate things that are good. And in their pride, they'll love pleasure more than God. And Paul warns Timothy in the, in the latter times that there will be those that prey on vulnerable people by gaining their confidence and leading them astray like false teachers. These people will look and act religious, it says, but they reject the power of the word of God. And because of that, they'll never know the truth. My second point that I want to make is how do we get to a society like this? And it's not just today. As I said, Pilate already had it was that way in, in Bible times. So how does, a, how does a person get to a place where their view on truth can be so distorted? Again, I think this happens when, when man is 
thinks that his judgment is better than God's. When man is filled up with his own pride and he thinks that he can do better on his own wisdom than with God's help. And I'm not a historian. Um, I think Gerald touched on this maybe before, but the biggest shift in this came when man started to believe in science and facts and reason instead of spiritual truth in God. And when that, when that time actually happened in history, when, when there was more and more scientific discoveries being made, I don't exactly know. But as we've heard before in describing the Bible and how it was shaped and so on, as we've heard this week, that when man takes God out of the equation, he is also dismissing the moral standard of the Bible. And so if we only use science and facts and reason as our moral code, is it any wonder that there are churches today and people today that take things that were once right and wrong and now they can be viewed as acceptable because they have taken God out of the picture. By taking the spiritual element out and replacing it totally with facts and laws of this world, man has effectively taken away the ability to to discern truth. And I think it was Gerald that mentioned that philosophers have a have a hard time with this word truth. And that's true. Many scientists and philosophers have have wrestled with truth throughout the the years. And that's because when when man when man starts to discover things in the universe, and this is going back in history when man started to discover things in the universe, they thought they were discovering truth. And so, and it's true, we heard that. We heard that there was um, many things like medicine and so on, but even the simple concepts, like take the law of gravity, for example. They, they noticed these things that when, you, when something is dropped, it falls down. And so they did some testing and... and that's the way it is. So they write the law of gravity. And that law remains true. And it always will. And as they discovered more things about the solar system and so on, and how this earth, this earth all works together, in man's mind, they think that this, this earth is like a big machine. And when we can figure it all out, we can make it a better place to live. But we all know how that has worked out for mankind. But the problem is, is that Science can only discover truth in the natural realm. And so they can only make laws for things that we can physically do tests on. And so rather than when they run against in the natural realm, rather than admitting that man's ability to discover truth is limited, man in his pride said that reality must be limited and that what we have here in this physical earth is all that we have. What does that remind you of? Does that sound like the headlines that we're reading right now about climate change? These people live, they think this is all we have, the physical world that we live in. They have totally dismissed the supernatural and God. And so it's almost impossible, if you were to talk to one of those people, it is almost impossible to try to explain to somebody like that truth that is based on a physical world if it's relating to something that we have to accept by faith. 
through a spiritual world. You know, as pastors here and as Christians, we know that the world has been in constant decay since the fall of man. But how do you describe that to somebody who doesn't understand the spiritual realm? And that is why over the course of history, so many of philosophers' arguments have been broken over and over again because they're based on what they see in this world. There was a French philosopher named Voltaire and he had wrote many negative things about the Christians. And he lived about 240 years ago. And, he, and one of his statements that, that is quoted over and over again is that he said that a hundred years after his death, there will be no Bibles on the earth anymore, except for those that will be in museums just so that people can remember what it was. Well, if my math is correct, that's 140 years after the 100-year mark. And we just heard yesterday from Eric that it's still the best-selling book in the world, so much so that it's not even marked on the best-seller lists. But can we fault him for his judgment? Because he was making his judgment based on the physical world. He was making his judgment based on human reasoning. Turn with me to Romans 1. Romans 1, verses 21 to 25. It says that because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and, excuse me, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man and to the birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul here again proving that the Bible is still relevant for us today. They faced these same things back then. Paul is warning of people that will avoid God and turn away from him. He's saying that in their pride, they will say that they are wise. They know better than God. They don't know. They don't need him. And in doing that, they will worship the creation more than the creator. These people live in a physical world. They worship that physical world and they want to solve all their problems through what they've learned from that physical world. Again, this is where the climate change crowd fits in. Can we blame them for their views? If this is all that you knew of this earth and you looked at the and you looked at the stats that they have and you take the spiritual realm out of that, can we blame them for the research that they've come up with? And the views that they have. In the beginning, if you remember, I said that the biggest reason that I believe that the world and some churches no longer think that parts of the Bible are relevant today is because of their view on truth. And so, as we've looked at the post-truth society that we live in, but also throughout history, and we've looked at 
how we've become that post-truth society, and I want to spend a bit of time looking at what a proper perspective of truth is and how this proves that the Bible is still relevant for us today. You know, as if we want to stand firm and live victorious lives in this post-truth society, especially as pastors, we need to know what that truth is, and we need to be familiar with it. And, and the obvious reason to be familiar with it is so that we can use it to compare other things to it to determine what is and isn't truth. And whenever you're doing a comparison like that, whether it's between two objects or whatever it is, you need to have a standard in order to properly judge those things. And, and that term in, in science is called an absolute. It's something that does not change. It is always the same. And so you can take that absolute and you can properly compare two objects to it and make a judgment on it. And so as a Christian living in this world where truth and honesty and commitment are no longer very popular, what can we use today as our absolute to determine what is and isn't truth? What is our measuring stick as pastors when we get asked questions, when people come to us with their problems, what is our measuring stick that we use to determine truth? Do we, like society around us, turn to science and reason? Or do we turn to facts and philosophies? Or do we make judgments based on our feelings? Or what's the easiest? Or maybe what makes us most popular? I believe that the only real absolute that we have, that we can measure, that we can use to measure and to determine and to compare everything else that, we come, that comes to us in this world, is what we've been discussing this week. It's the holy living word of God. That is the only truth that we can, that we can accept. Nothing else. Anything else besides the Bible is going to let us down. The Bible is the only thing that can be accurately used to determine truth. And we can put our confidence in it because we know that it was given to us by God. And I'm not going to go into that further because we had some rich teaching about how that was created and where it was come and the authority of the scripture and, and all of that. But the more familiar that we are with the book that we've been studying today, the more we can use it as a standard to determine what truth is in the life, in, in this society that we live in. Like the flip, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to turn to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 again. At the end of the chapter, Paul says this to Timothy, 14 to 17, he says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Paul here, he's encouraging Timothy to stay in tune with the word. He's telling him to use, to stay in tune with it so that he can use the word as his measuring stick to determine 
to help him through life in any situation. He's telling Timothy that that the Bible is a tool. It's not just a best-selling book, as we heard. It's not just a, an interesting literary story, as we heard this week. But instead, it's alive, and it's powerful, and it's relevant today. The Word is given to us for teaching, for encouraging, for correcting, and for training. And it can prepare us for anything that we face in this life. The words of Solomon are true. There is nothing new under the sun. As Wendell pointed out, we face different issues. We face different challenges throughout the generations. And those will continue to differ as generations go on. You know, technology will become old and dated. Machines are constantly being upgraded so that they're faster and more efficient. But one thing that does not change is the Bible. And the Bible is relevant to us today because it speaks to our emotions, it speaks to our heart, and our emotional makeup and our feelings will not change no matter what the date is on the calendar. Even though we live in a much different world, we live in a much different culture than what the Bible was written, the Bible still it still speaks to us and we can still identify with it because it speaks through feelings, emotions, fears. Mankind still struggles with the very same heart conditions that they did when the Bible was written. We deal with the same heart issues. They're just practiced a bit differently maybe depending where we live in the world and when we live in the world. In closing, I'd like to turn to John 17 yet. These are verses that Wendell touched on as well. John 17, verses 14 to 17 say, this is Jesus' words. He says, I have given them thy word, and the word, sorry, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. My Bible, the, the W there on word is not capitalized. Wendell said he doesn't know if that's referring to Christ or the word of God. But in the end, he, he taught us that it really doesn't matter. You know, we can have the full confidence that the Bible is true because it is. It was given to us by God. It was declared by his son. And it's the only real truth that we have in the world today. After all these years, the Bible hasn't changed. It still has the power to convict the sinner and to sanctify the believer. And this precious word is all that we need to live in the post-truth society we live in today and for any other era that we live in until the Lord returns. May God bless each one of you.